welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast, presented by Exo Mountain Gear. This podcast and the gear that we produce at Exo Mountain Gear share the same purpose, to make you a more capable, confident, and successful backcountry hunter. This show is all about providing you with valuable information from experienced hunters. To learn more about the podcast or about our backcountry hunting packs, visit exomountaingear.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. Oh man, it's October. It's crazy how it snuck up on us. I hope that you guys had a great September and had some fun adventures. I said it already, but if you guys haven't yet, man, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, you can send us your story, your field photos, all that good stuff directly to us, um, to podcast at exomountgear.com. We would just love to hear from you and hear how your season has went thus far. And hopefully it's not over. Hopefully have some tags left to fill here in October and November. Um, and yeah, the rest of this year. In this episode, we are back talking about our caribou hunt. So in the previous episode, we had some of the guys from the hunt telling the stories of the adventure and how we filled some tags and the ups and downs of that hunt. In this episode, it's just Steve and myself talking more about the logistics and the nitty gritty and how to and in all reality, answering the questions that we've been getting from you guys about this type of hunt. So some of those big questions like cost and how do you get tags and how do you pull this off? Like that's what we hit in this episode. We broke it up into two parts um, and we hit everything from the minor, minor details on gear to major details, again, such as cost and travel and all that. So we kind of cover a lot in these two episodes uh, certainly don't answer every question about doing this type of hunt, but tried to hit um, all of the questions that we've been getting from you guys and tackle those topics well for you. If there's something we don't hit, you have other questions after listening to these episodes, definitely reach out. Let us know. All right, let's go ahead and dive right in. Uh, Steve and myself talking about how to plan and do an Alaska adventure, such as this caribou hunt that we were just on this last month. Steve, how's it going today? Pretty good, man. How are you doing? Good. It uh, it feels like yesterday and at the same time forever ago that we were in Alaska, but here we are uh, in October now, a few weeks removed. And man, what a what a fun trip! What a crazy trip! As you guys hopefully heard in the podcast last week, we talked with uh, some more guys that were on the trip with Steve and I, and kind of told the story about the hunt in terms of um, some of the success, some of the struggles, just kind of how things went down. So. In this episode, we're going to talk more detail in terms of nitty-gritty on planning a hunt like this, uh, going on a hunt like this, hitting on costs and gear, um, and all those questions that you guys had. So we actually reached out um, and asked what you guys wanted to know about this type of hunt, and that's basically what we're going to dive into. Um, Steve, just to give context, you've done this hunt, this was your second time, so you did it, when was that, 2017 for the first time? Yep. Yeah, so 2017, and then here in 2019, you've done it twice. You've also done an Alaskan moose hunt, so this is your third trip to Alaska. For me, this was my first trip, so um, I would say I uh, identify with a lot of you guys who have a lot of these questions, just in terms of basic stuff, like flying back with meat and all that. So we'll talk about all that. 
Um, but that's kind of context. The number one question that came up when we asked what you guys wanted to know about a trip like this uh, was price. And what does it take to do this uh, as a whole? The number I came up with is a bare minimum, Steve, and we'll chat about the details on this. Well, let me ask you this. With, I don't even know that you've crunched numbers, but what's your first thought if somebody says, what does it take to do this hunt? Like DIY, drop camp for caribou, like what's a good overall number that they should budget? I think, unfortunately, I mean, I think you could go cheaper, but probably five grand is the number that comes to mind. Um, and maybe that's a little, no, that's about right. Yeah, that's about right. I think you could save, you know, 70 bucks here, 100 bucks there. But by the time you book the hunt, which going to be three grand to 3,500, probably depending on who it is, how far they have to fly out into the field, you buy your license, you buy your tags, you buy your plane flight. Yeah, you're going to be right there at five grand actually pretty quick. Um, so it's not, um, it's not cheap. That's for sure. It's, you know, but I think it's totally planable, even if you're on a tight budget. If you, you know, it's 2019, if you say you want to go in 2021 or 2022, start setting aside a little bit of money every month. Uh, I think it's entirely achievable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the way to plan a hunt like this is to do it two, three years out at least. Um, unless, you know, you're swimming in cash, then good for you. But, uh, as I looked at the number, Steve, five grand's like in all reality, I'd want to say you can do it for less than that, but in all reality, if you're factoring all costs, I don't think you can. I think five grand's a minimum to budget, as you mentioned, Steve. So three grand, maybe thirty five hundred, um, you know, just to have uh, get dropped into the field, essentially have that transportation in and out of the field um, from Alaska. So on top of that, let's call it three grand. Um, you're going to have your commercial flight to Alaska. What did you guys? What was that for you guys, Steve? Hmm, that's a good question. I, so yeah, number one thing to do is get an Alaska Airlines credit card yeah. and use your companion fare for this because they give you basically, uh, I think it's just 99 bucks, right? Um, yeah, or I don't even know if it's that. Yeah, it's $99 plus fees. So anyways, the say the flight uh, for one person is $700. You basically can do two people for $799. Um, so it's, it's essentially buy one, get one free plus you got to pay an extra 150 bucks. It's quite an incredible deal. So between you and your buddy, uh, or if you get a group of four or two guys, get those Alaska airline credit cards. Um, cause that is going to save you, you know, a chunk of change right up front. Yeah. So yeah, say, and, and yeah, to, I guess to go back, I think our, I think the flight was 800 bucks, 770 or something like that. Gotcha. Yeah. So seven, 800 bucks for your commercial flight three grand um you know for the the charter essentially service you're already pushing close to four um and then license and tags like i did my hunting license my caribou tag and then a wolf tag which i want to say was 60 bucks but all three of those together were 870 so you can see already just with flights license tag and then you know your uh, your hunt service flight you're 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 definitely four plus there already and so the big factor in can you do it four or five grand how much over five grand do you go a huge huge factor there is gear and what do you have and what do you need um but as steve as you mentioned the alaska airlines credit card is for sure a great way to go um jared that uh that went with us we had been talking for years about the two of us going to Alaska and he got the card years ago. And so we used miles as well as companion airfare and 
if you do it, and especially if you have two or three years out and you start not only getting that Alaska Airlines credit card, but using it to get the rewards and the miles, it's it's for sure um, can be a game changer in that regard and save you hundreds and hundreds of dollars. But yeah, so cost um, five grand, count on it at least, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. I think, and so there's, you know, obviously you get the, you could probably, if you buy your airline, Alaska Airlines credit card now, like you said, you could probably get the thing for free uh, between the companion fare and using rewards miles um, if you did it two or three years out from now. So, and then, yeah, as far as like, you know, if you're already set up to go on a Western elk hunt or whatever, um, there's not a whole lot more gear that you do need. It's, uh, hip waders um, are the probably the biggest one that jumps out, and then as uh, we we got to experience up there, a tent that can handle legitimate wind is uh, is something that definitely would pop up. Yeah, yeah, we'll get we'll get more detailed on gear here in a bit, but yeah, gear is a big question mark in terms of budget based off of what you have, what you need. Um, food, I know a lot of guys don't factor food into their hunt plans because they think, well, I'm I have to eat if I'm at home anyway, but still like food can add up if you're um, buying certain things. It's at least worth considering lodging there and back is worth considering. So, um, you know, do you have like an overnight here and overnight there? Because depending on where you fly, like say we were flying out of Kotzebue, your lodging choices are limited and they're not cheap. Um, so that can add a, f- a few hundred bucks here and there easy um, in terms of lodging. And then when you factor in your flight cost also, consider the cost of adding um you know your baggage to that so it's it's flight cost plus baggage so you can see all that adds up and you're definitely over four grand like in a hurry and then close to five um in all reality really quickly so that that cost that's a big one um number one question we got i'd say five grand minimum second uh, most common question was how do you get tags and that's actually super easy um I mean, there there certainly some limited hunts out there, I'm sure, but there's plenty of over-the-counter opportunity where you don't have to apply, don't have to draw, don't have to do a point game. Um, I mean, we bought our tags, Steve, in July, essentially. Um, we knew what we were going, we knew what we were going to get, but tags are not an issue. And then just on the topic of tags, I mentioned really quick, depending on where you're at, like look at what other species might be available worth considering. Um, adding that wolf tag for us was, I want to say 60 bucks. Um, and to me, that was a no brainer just to have that. Um, actually the, the camp that flew out right before we flew in, they had a, they brought a wolf out with them. So that's definitely another opportunity. Um, and then just worth mentioning fishing. If you were, if you're planning on doing any fishing as well, um, that's reasonable, but like a seven day fishing license on top of, uh, your hunting license and tags is right about 70 bucks. So just those things to consider there. Um, the third most popular question was what is the best time to go? And I don't, (laughs) I don't know that we can answer that question effectively, Steve, but what are your thoughts having done it twice now? And I think maybe having an atypical experience, but still, what would you say to consider when guys are choosing when to go for a hunt like this? Caribou, uh, in theory, the later in the year you go, uh, the more migration should be happening. Um, but I don't, yeah, that just depends. That's specific, I guess, to the area that we're going. If you were on the north side of the Brooks Range, you'd want to go earlier than that because they've all migrated to the south by the time if you went late. So I would, 
I guess even as far as the going back one to um, getting the tags, I think you probably just need to start with a good air charter service uh, and then they're going to have the information for you. So maybe do your homework on, uh, you know, caribou herds and what they're doing, but really it, it would boil down to um, finding a good reputable air service that's going to fly out to the field and then they're going to have the information for you on, on what tags how to get them and, and what tag you need for that specific area. So, yeah. Um, yeah. If you're hunting in a specific area, um, a specific unit or, you know, a specific herd, there's only so many options you're going to have on like what air services operate there. So um, that can be a great place to start. Steve is to look at air services first and then figure out who's reputable, uh, who who you want to go with and then they're going to operate in a certain area so i I could see how you could go both ways on that air service first or wanting to hunt a certain area first but either way they're they're definitely very close uh very closely connected and that those are two important decisions for sure um the other thing i'd say on time of year uh you know specifically if i could caribou hunt like you can you can go early and you can be the first ones out like you guys were in 2017 steve and you can kill some caribou, you can come late and you can kill caribou. Like either way, you're not guaranteed anything, obviously, but there is success throughout, I think the whole caribou season and there's waves and you can hit it or miss it. There's no magic date, but there's other things such as just understanding weather that you may or may not want to hunt in. So if you go earlier, you're going to have, you know, a higher chance of bugs being an issue. You go later in the year, obviously it can be colder. You could have you know, more storms that potentially would cause more delays and logistics of getting in and out of the field. Um, and of course, any of that can happen anytime, but I think the later you go, the more likely or probable that would be. So just think through those things as well. Um, and then with caribou specifically, like maybe you want to get one in velvet or you want to get one hard horned again, you can't always control that, but that could be a factor, um, that you would consider with going early or late just in terms of the animals. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot to that. There's, I don't think there's any right answer. And then above all, I would, you know, as you're talking to air services or planning to hunt like this, ask the air services about the pros and the cons of going early, going late, and obviously ask other people who've had those experiences as well. Yeah, I would definitely, uh, on an air service, just that uh, note popped into my mind is I'd get a whole, I'd have them give you a list of customers and then get their phone numbers and call them up. And I'm sure people are more than willing to share their experience and, and what they went through. Cause um, you know, they're going to have a different take on it than what the air service is going to say, or, or maybe some little tidbits that are going to help you a lot. Um, like for us, you know, uh, lightweight hip waders would be fantastic. And, uh, and that tent for the rain um, or for the wind would, you know, something that um, having a, a tent big enough that we could all hang out in was, you know, fantastic. Cause you're going to have, a, you know, just plan on two days of sitting inside that sucker. And if you don't get that, you're lucky. An interesting question uh, that stood out to me that we received was, is this a hard hunt? And they were talking about physically. <laughs> um, and honestly, going into this, I would was thinking no. And I didn't think it'd be a breeze. Like I knew that, you know, there's the tussocks, the hairy balls that we talked about. Like I knew we'd have to move through some tough country and it wouldn't be a cakewalk by any means. Um, but I didn't expect it to be as hard as it was for us. And I think maybe that that was abnormal, but, um, what are your thoughts, Steve, on 
physical capabilities or just kind of like mindset for going like do we just sit around camp and shoot a caribou as they walk by or is this going to be very physical and difficult would you say a caribou hunt is a hard hunt i don't think it's supposed to be um I think it is supposed to be, you know, you, you hunt within a mile of camp and, and, you know, caribou move by, by you and you shoot one. Um, the one I went in 17 with Lenny and I, we were able to, we had to hunt about three miles south of us. It's just where all the caribou were moving, but we could get there pretty easily. Right. I mean, it was mainly, um, some gravel stuff that we could walk on. And, and that's one note is having good aerial imagery of, of, um, the area that you're hunting, which is sometimes hard because the pilot service doesn't necessarily know exactly where you're going. Um, but, uh, and so having an aerial imagery to like zoom in and plan your route. Cause you, you can't just walk in a straight line and that stuff. You're, you know, you're just constantly like walking half a mile left just to stay on dry ground if you can. Um, but that hunt was, you know, we, we hiked yeah every day. We hiked at least six miles, three miles South and three miles back up. But it was fairly easy walking and not bad. This hunt was full on like mountain hunting <laughs> for caribou. Uh, we were right on the edge of the mountain. So we were climbing hills. We were doing, you know, I mean, that last day, I think you and I probably we at least did 15 miles. Yeah. Um, and that's on top of nasty, you know, just the, not exactly easy walking. Let's put it that way. So probably the equivalent of a 20 plus mile day here in, in Idaho. Um, so we definitely hunted hard. I, I said, I don't think it's supposed to be that hard. We, we had a group of guys, uh, roll into the camp when we left and there were some older dudes and we just felt sorry for them. I mean, cause they were in their sixties. I think one guy was 70, not exactly in killer shape. Um, and we were just like, I don't know what these guys are going to do. You can't, you can't walk anywhere from our camp without getting stuck in those hairy balls. Yeah. Um, other than along the edge of the lake. Um, so maybe that's, you know, they, they were pretty limited. I'll put it that way on, on what they were able to do because of their physical fitness. And, you know, that's just, but they were probably expecting a, a hunt where they could hang out at camp and walk half a mile and shoot a caribou. And, and I think just that specific location where, where we got dropped off, they got dropped off, didn't lend itself to that very easy. Which is maybe a great question to ask the air service as well, like to talk to them about your group, your physical capabilities, understanding the terrain that you might be in and then what's possible. Um, so that could be a good question to bring up in your planning and as you're looking at areas. But yeah, I think I think some guys have that experience where they shoot caribou out of camp and that's fantastic. Um, and then, yeah, we certainly <laughs> did the opposite of that and not by choice. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> like we were trying to... Yeah yeah prove our toughness or anything which is just what we had to do to kill caribou um yeah one interesting question on the air service and where you get dropped and yada 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 someone i'll just read the way that they phrased it because i just kind of had to chuckle with our experience of the answer to this but this person said where do you find information on where and how often you get dropped off at or how often other hunters get dropped where you hunt as well so like where are you getting dropped and how often are other people getting dropped there is basically their question um we had i think five potential spots that were sent to us um that hey you guys could be here um but we honestly didn't know until we were i want to say wheels up but floats up in the plane um and on the way to where we were going we didn't know where we were going until then essentially right yeah i mean i think the it's frustrating. Um, the first trip out, 
um, with this air service, they gave us a very, very, very vague general, like you'll be in this area and it's a hundred miles wide, you know? Um, and then, you know, got a bit of a little bit of relationship with them. They, you know, I don't know if they're just, uh, trust us a little bit more or whatever that they're willing to give out that info. I got some more specific locations. Um, but the honest truth of the matter is there's other companies out there dropping people off. Um, so they may plan to take you to a certain, uh, runway strip or lake or whatever, but if they get there and someone else is there, then they're moving you to the next spot. Um, and then they also are, the problem is from, you know, the customer's perspective is they are business and they're trying to make money and be efficient. So I think they may head out to the field with the intention to take you one place, but if there's a super strong headwind, they might have to drop you off shorter than they were thinking just because logistically that's what they have to do. So the, the probably, you know, they keep it very vague. Like we don't know where you're going until you're out there. And I think that's really true. They, they probably have a pretty good idea where they want to go. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think there's a lot of conditions that dictate where they end up dropping you off at. So they have a, you know, they're flying in and they probably have, you know, plan A, B, C, D, and you may get dropped off at any four of those. Um, I think that's just the reality of it. So it's really hard to, um, I guess that's the benefit of going early in the season. Um, there's going to be less hunters out there. Uh, and, um, yeah, and that's another part of it. They, they may want to take you to a lake, but they've got some hunters on that lake and they've been stuck out there for two days and they're not going to necessarily drop you off on top of other hunters till they pick up those ones. Um, there's, there's a lot of factors going into it. So I guess, yeah, just open conversation with the, with the air service and as best you can get the information you can out of them. And, um, obviously I think it's absolutely critical to have good maps for the area that you're hunting so you can navigate around it. And, um, and so you, you got to get that information out of them one way or another. Or just download maps for an entire gigantic area, which uh, takes some time. Yeah, that was the number one thing to me that leading, like in the weeks before this hunt, that I would like just kept going through my mind, like how weird this is that I'm going somewhere and I haven't scouted, even e scouted, and I honestly don't even know where I'm going. Like you can't scout, you don't you don't know where you're gonna be. Um, and so that was such a weird yeah. thing for me, like planning on a hunt, going on a hunt. What's part of that normal process of like getting excited about a new area and wanting to pull it up in Google Earth and check it out and make plans and yada, 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 yada. I couldn't do any of that because I didn't know where I was going to be. Um, and so that was definitely difficult. Um, part of that question that they asked was, you know, how often are other people hunting in those spots? I'd say it maybe matters and it maybe doesn't. Um you know, just based upon what the caribou are doing, I wouldn't at all, like if, if they drop you in a spot where they just pulled people out of, I wouldn't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Um, like if caribou are moving through there, keep in mind that typically caribou are moving through. So it's not like you're quote unquote hunting pressured animals. You could be in a spot the week after a group was there and it's just a great migration corridor and all the caribou moving through, like, they don't know that there was a camp there last week or that, you know, three caribou were killed last week, that type of thing, because they're migrating, they're moving through. So I think it's different in terms of, like, hunting pressure than the mindset of what most of us would be familiar with of, you know, hunting elk or hunting deer or what have you and thinking of pressured animals and exposed to hunters. And I don't think that's as big of a concern um, on a typical caribou hunt. So I just 
say if you're hunting a place that's been hunted um for caribou specifically it's probably not as big of a deal as what your first thought might be yeah 100 percent. a moose hunt entirely different ordeal um caribou hunt really doesn't matter if you're a fisherman you can like salmon or steelhead you could equate it to somebody fishing the hole the day before you that means absolutely nothing is because the fish are just moving up river every single day so um a lot of the questions we got had to do with just travel logistics so we'll just hit that pretty quick um i guess first from the perspective of getting up there um Episode 193 of the podcast, just going back a month or so ago, uh, we talked about how to travel with weapons. So a lot of that's relevant because clearly you're going to be fine with some sort of weapon, be it bow or rifle. And we talked about both. So I'd say on that topic specifically, um, go listen to that one. But for me traveling up there, I had my rifle case, which not only included my rifle, uh, it included my handgun, my optics, my tripod, my knives, all kinds of stuff. And I talked about that in the traveling with weapons episode of you know, with a rifle case, if you have a 50 pound limit and you have space, stuff it with other stuff. Um, so I was literally 49.4 pounds or something with a whole bunch of gear with my rifle case. So I had my rifle case, which was obviously checked, um, a duffel bag, which was checked and then a carry on. So that's, that's all I had to get up there. Um, and our trip was different than some. I mean, we brought all of our own gear in terms of shelter, sleep system, food, Obviously, for some of you guys looking at a drop hunt, you can go um, with an option where uh, they're dropping you with camp, so with shelter, with food, etc., which means you have to travel with less. But you should be able to get by essentially with um, one or two checked bags and a carry-on to get up there, and that can be pretty simple. We will do kind of like a what's in my pack type video gear list. Um all of that for this hunt. So we'll be sure to get that out there as well to go into more details about gear. A couple of the things that just stood out um, in terms of things that were new to me is when you get there and you transfer from your commercial flight to your flight into the field, for us that was a float plane, you don't want giant bulky luggage. And they were pretty clear about that. So we had a bunch of smaller dry bags that for me... The contents of my big duffel was now divvied up into three or four smaller dry bags just because they load those planes very specifically um, and they have to be able to split gear and reorganize gear and balance gear. So that's something to keep in mind. Check with your air service on how you can fly um, in that final flight with quote unquote luggage or with your gear. That's important to keep in mind. And then at the same time, I didn't fly with my big hard-sided rifle case. They just want a small um, soft-sided case for your rifle, essentially. So those two things were um, normal, for sure, for this type of experience, but were new to me, so just worth mentioning there. Anything else, Steve, in terms of getting there, and then we'll kind of dive into getting back with meat and antlers and all that stuff. Mm, yeah, no, getting there. The, the one thing that always pops up that could just bite you in the butt is not having locks on your gun case. Um, and I think it depends on the airline, apparently, that the TSA agent that I inspected my gun. He basically said the rule is is uh, you can't be able to get, open up any part of it. So if you had a, a long plastic case and you had locks on both ends, but you could unlatch the middle and pry that up a little bit, um, that wouldn't pass. But if you had one lock in the middle, um, then it would pass, right? So just keep that in mind. I think it's the rule that we had from the last time, which somebody told us is there needs to be a lock on every single place there can be a lock on the gun case. So if there's a little 
hole right there to slide a lock through, put it there. Um, I think that's still a good rule to follow because you hate to be at the airport and uh, only have two locks and they tell you it doesn't pass and then you're scrambling to, you know, drive down the road, run out of the airport and go get a lock. So just that's an easy one. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, we just, you know, rifle case. I had one. Uh, actually, I had two dry bags, but that's because I had the big tent um, and wore my backpack on the plane. Technically, an XO is too big for um, travel, but all of us flew with our packs the whole time and never had a single issue. So, um, yeah, I just put uh, for me, I put some of the expensive stuff in my pack. So it was with me cameras, optics, uh, things like that, just in case, um, you know, a package or one of the one of your baggage uh, items went missing. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point on what goes missing. I was pretty strategic with what I packed with me versus what was checked. As much as you can. I mean, there was certainly checked gear. I'd prefer not to check, but you have limitations there. But it is worth considering change of clothes, things like that. Like, worst case scenario, if something gets lost, can you have the the quote-unquote essentials with you? Um, And I would say that the probability of your rifle case getting lost is also much less likely just because they're treated much differently through the process. So if you can keep your most, most important items secured in your weapons case and with you as a carry-on, do that. And then with that other checked item, um, maybe some things you could get by without. Like worst case scenario, I had my food in that. And obviously I need food, but worst case scenario, I could get food um, from you guys, you know, that I was with, you could get food from the air service because they do outfit clients with food. So it, it it is worth considering as you're packing, like to have that strategy um, just for worst case scenario. One thing that I'll throw out there, you mentioned change of clothes. Um, didn't do this on the first trip, but the last two did. Leave a change of clothes like with your gun case and with the air service in town. So when you get out, you have fresh clothes to put on. So we, we didn't do that the first time. And, and, um, after just whatever reason being in your tent and with all your other dirty clothes, um, yeah, everything just stinks when you get out of the field. So it was super nice to have some fresh clothes to put on once you got out. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, flying back. Uh, that was a big question mark for me. I had talked with you, Steve. I had talked to plenty of other people who'd done it, but still until you do it, it feels like this crazy process of flying with meat and antlers, um, and especially from Alaska and Alaska airlines, they are so used to this. It is no big deal at all. Um, I would say that there's differences though. And these are great questions to ask your air service of what they provide and help you with. Um, so it was fantastic for us when we got back to the field, they provided us with the fish boxes to put our meat in. They provided us with antler boxes. They provided us with space to uh, prepare our meat to be boxed up and packaged and fly with. And that's fantastic that our air service did that. That's a hundred percent different than what you guys went through, like on your moose hunt, Steve, when they got back and they're basically like, good luck, figure it out. Right. Yeah. Pretty much that first trip they were, um, yeah, they were just like, I think they really wanted to put, they make some money on handling your meat for you and, and getting it uh, to Anchorage to, uh, process. Um, they probably have some deal with the meat processor there. I, I don't know, but they definitely, um, we wanted to bring it home and they were basically, Oh, okay. You're on your own. Um, versus, uh, the, the air service we went with here, they've, like I said, it's a whole different, they got the fish boxes, antler boxes, place to cut up your meat. 
Um, the hotel there in town has a freezer so that you can store your meat. I mean, it's, it's such a painless process, but that's absolutely a very important question to get lined out before you go into the field um, is, uh, you know, just how you're going to get that meat back out and what they provide and help you with. And um, to me, it, it's a no brainer. Um, yeah. You know, get fish boxes, uh, get the meat cut up when you get out of the field. You can't bone it while you're out there in the field. It needs to be bone on. But once you get out, take off all the bone, um, throw it in boxes, freeze it, and and get it home. And, man, that's because uh, our moose meat, um, I think we ended up, obviously it was a September hunt. I think we got it in, like, I'm going to say March. I mean, it was a ridiculous amount of time before that meat finally made it back to us. Um, so, yeah, huge, huge question to ask. Yeah, for sure. And in terms of cost of all that, um, it's essentially an overweight fee, essentially. I, I want to say it's what, it's $100 per item, Steve, on that? Yeah, yeah, $100 for over the overweight item. So we had, you know, one box of meat per guy, basically boned it out and be able to get all the meat inside of a box. Like, I think Jason's was like 97 pounds. Mine was 78 pounds of boned out meat. Um, so you can get pretty close to hundred pounds of boned out meat in one of those uh, fish boxes. And then we think we had mine, Jason's and Tyler's uh, bulls all in one big antler box. So we had a hundred dollar charge for that, but we were able to split that up between the three guys. Yeah. So in terms of cost, that's what you're looking at. Um, oversize overweight is a hundred per. So if you had one antler box, as, as you mentioned, you can split that with a few typically. Um, then you're good to go there. And then one box of meat up to hundred pounds, you're good to go. And that, that covered everybody. Um, the antler box, like the ones we had were big, like they, did we, did you guys end up splitting anything, Steve? Any nope, antlers? Every, yeah, we were able to leave, uh, Tyler's, Tyler's, Tyler's bowl was big enough. Right. It wouldn't fit in there. Yeah. yeah. But mine and Jason's fit, uh, Jason's fit just inside. Mine was a little bit smaller. Tyler's was yeah big enough that we needed to split it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it worked out great. Yeah. Jared's and I were both small and we shared a box. We had more than enough space. <laughs> we could have fit you know, a few more in there. Um, yeah. So that really was um, painless. Again, just to give you guys an idea of the timeline, we flew out of the field. Uh, we're back at our air service, basically at their little HQ, processed the meat there, boxed the meat there. We had a night in Katsubu at the hotel. The hotel had a walk-in freezer. So the meat was in the the freezer there for 12 plus hours um, flew out early the next morning. We all got home late, late that night. So through three commercial flights, you know, things were stored and secured. And, you know, when we got back, uh, everything was still cool and good to go. So it was, it was truly a painless process. Um, but yeah, I mean, make sure that your air service is going to help you get those antler boxes, fish boxes for the meat, or that you have some other plan for sure. That's something you want to nail down. Um, had a lot of questions, Steve, on weapon choice, um, both bow versus rifle, as well as guys asking specifically about rifles in terms of, uh, cartridges and calibers and things like that. For me, the bow versus rifle decision was pretty easy. Um, I was like, I had this regret of not having a bow if we were just in this migration frenzy and there's caribou moving through like crazy and kind of what we all hoped it would be in a perfect scenario. That'd be so, so fun to bow hunt. But at the same time, we had six tags, uh, five days to hunt. Like I knew the time was limited. Um, 
and just with it being my first time especially was completely content uh to fill a tag with a rifle uh if that was what was going to be best and in the interest of how many tags we had and how much time we had i thought that would be best as it turns out it was best because we hardly saw any caribou essentially um and definitely needed some rifles to help get that done um, but what would you just kind of throw out there as quick things to consider on bow versus rifle or both? Um, you don't have to choose if you can logistically travel with both. Um, you can do that, but to help guys make that decision or think through it, Steve, what are some of your thoughts? You know, I think if you go back to that Billy Moles podcast we did, where he talked about basically if you're willing to do both, if you're like, I want to kill one with a bow, but I'm going to take a rifle just in case. I think his analysis of just take the gun is spot on um it it's less stuff to travel with it, it's less complicated just grab the gun enjoy the hunt and if you're okay on the last day killing something with a gun you should be okay with that on the first day if you're not then just don't even take a gun just go with the bow um you know but it's hard it's um i think you know we're, we're sitting here telling guys plan like the build anticipation for this hunt i remember with the moose hunt very vividly um it's the first time you've ever spent any kind of you know real money outside of a you know even a non-resident hunt and you know if i want to go to wyoming you know you're looking at like a thousand bucks or something like that but when you're talking about spending five six seven eight thousand dollars like you know eight grand was the moose hunt um you know there's there's a lot of money and time and anticipation involved in this and you want to come home with something but you're also a bow hunter. And so you're like, I'd like to do it with a bow. And, uh, it's a tough thing to, to deliberate. But I, again, I think, I think you just have a better with a rifle, like with a rifle caribou, I just brought a rifle up. I just wanted an enjoying, relaxing hunt. I wanted to tag out early and just fish and drink whiskey and hang out and help, uh, help everybody else hunt. And, um, so I was totally okay with that. And, and I was more, uh, I was going in with the idea that I was going to be more selective normally with a bow. I'm, like any legal animal, you know, let's go game on with a rifle. I was like, okay, this, this will be cool. I'll be able to, you know, choose between several big bulls and shoot a nice one and um, end up not being the case just with the amount of animals we saw. But that should have been the case in theory. So, yeah, again, um, if you're okay with a rifle, I think you just take a rifle. If you're like Lenny was like diehard with a bow, he didn't take a gun. Um, I think that's, you know, I think you just got to make that decision up front. Yeah. And if there's a, a group of you guys, or even if you, there's two of you and you both bring bows and one backup rifle, like there's definitely strategies there. That's what you guys did on the yeah. first hunt, you and Lenny, Steve. So, um, not saying you can't do both by any means, but, uh, at the same time, logistically, both in terms of travel and other things, it can be simpler to do one. So yeah, personal decision for sure, but definitely, um, think about it, weigh the pros and cons and really think about the end goal and what you'd be happy with and go with that. Um, in terms of rifle specifics, um, I had my Tika 30-06, um, old school like that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's a great, man. Dude, I just, I don't know. I freaking love that rifle. I'm uh, I'm so, so happy with that Tika. And for, uh, I've done things to it, to, to aftermarket stock and yada, 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 which we can talk about later. But I would say just a factory off the shelf rifle. I couldn't be happier with than like a Tika. Um, I have the T3X stainless light. Um, and even at odd six, like I have no, no issues even like reaching out and shooting for fun. Steve, we shot that one day at whatever that was 700 something yards. And I'm yeah, not saying it's the best for that by any means. Like don't, don't hear me say that. 
Um, and I'm actually building a rifle that is better for that. But, um, yeah, I, w- I would say in the end, you can use what you have, whatever that is, whether it's a 30 out six, that's, uh, you know, old fashioned and out of date or Steve, you had a new six, five PRC. That's the latest and greatest stuff. So both will kill a caribou. Yeah. Um, yeah. So bring what you have. I don't think it's an area we have to specialize. Yeah. I think it's a very, if you're okay killing a deer with it, it's totally adequate for a caribou. They're not that much bigger. I don't think they're exceptionally tough or anything. I think a, a mule deer is probably tougher. Um, the only thing, if you're a rifle nut um, and geeking out on this stuff, which which I did earlier this year before I built that PRC, is um, I think looking at your, your BC and understanding the wind drift because wind is such an issue up there that if yeah. you are a guy who's okay with shooting something at five 600 yards – a bullet that's going to be more efficient in that. Like I, between my PRC and my Creedmoor, um, I think you're talking, you know, eight inches of wind drift more with a 10 mile an hour wind at 500 yards, something like that. Um, that's a huge difference. So the, the wind is something to consider up there. It, it blows all the time, constant. It's nothing like I've ever experienced in Idaho where you might have windy days, but they're, you know, it's like, it's a 15 mile an hour wind with a few gusts. I mean, legitimately you could be hunting, uh, and we and we didn't hunt because the wind was so constant and so steady and strong that like it wasn't even practical get, to get out there and shoot past 100 yards. So um, something to consider, anyways. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, the rifle stuff's fun. After years and years ago, geeking out on bows super deep, um, and I've always shot rifles uh, both for hunting and even shot recreationally, and used to do some like handgun competitive shooting, like not new to guns, but at the same time, all the, the super geekiness of rifles, like that bug I've been bit. So I'm definitely geeking out on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, this, well. the stuff that we had in common, Steve, I just actually just realized this now. So we were both around the same scope, the same bullet, obviously in drastically different calibers and cartridges and what else scope bullet. Oh, and bipod. Um, all three of those things were, were fantastic. So we were both running the VX5 uh, HD scopes from Leopold. Um, both shot the ELDX. You're shooting ELDX, right? Correct. Yeah. So, um, And then that, that Spartan bipod. Um, that's one of those things that I liked. I mean, it's definitely a premium product for sure. But especially on this hunt, after using it more and more in the field and not just at the range, like the simplicity, the convenience of that, um, it truly is fantastic. So I I can't stand having a bipod on my rifle. I don't mind shooting off of a pack or something instead of a bipod. But when you have a bipod that was that light and easy to get on and off, it really is pretty freaking awesome. Yeah, I you know mine was a perfect scenario if I had it in my pack uh, in the side stretch pocket, stocking the caribou at one point. Um, I had stopped and I needed to stand my pack upright to shoot off of it. Um, to, you know, just because of the terrain laid out and where the caribou were and I was about ready to shoot, uh, and the caribou, I didn't get a, an opportunity to shoot. Um, and then, you know, here, like half an hour later, I'm belly crawling I, and grab the bipod, slap it on there and end up shooting out of the prone position. And it was absolutely money to have. So I huge, huge fan of, of that Spartan bipod and how simple it is to use and lightweight and, Maybe a long range nuts. Like, oh, they're not the most accurate things out there or something. I don't know. But um, yeah, I think it, it's a very effective tool, that's for sure. 
Well, that is a wrap, guys, on just part one of this discussion. So as we come back, we talk much, much more about gear and clothing and optics and bear encounters and prevention and a whole bunch of other details answering your questions on this type of hunt. So be sure to tune back in next week and catch the rest of this conversation. As always, you can find the show at exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Podcasts and all the places you can get podcasts. And you can email us directly to podcast at exomountaingear.com.